My name is Augustin Passan, and you are listening to Magnolia Tree's podcast all about ethical leadership. Together with Sabina Gromer, the founder of Magnolia Tree, we leverage our network of inspiring individuals from all walks of life to learn from their experiences about leadership. Our goal is to spark thinking on ethics and leadership one podcast episode at a time. I invite you to join me on my journey of personal growth, and I look forward to learning more about leadership alongside you. There we go. Uh, I'm joined today by David Oldfield, and I'm so excited to have him on the show. And without further ado, please, David, introduce yourself. <laughs> well, thanks very much, Augustine. Uh, my name is David Oldfield. Um, I run the Midway Center for Creative Imagination, which is a bit of a mouthful, and uh, it has everything to do with many of the things I think we're going to be talking about going forward. Um, I, I guess that the, the thing that probably would be most germane to what I'm imagining, Augustine, that we're going to be talking about is for the last 40 some years, um, I have been sort of devoted to the creative imagination as sort of the organ of thought or the dimension of the human mind that I think is really um, underserved in practically any aspect of our lives. And um, the, the reason that I've focused on that and call my, um, my center the Midway Center for Creative Imagination sort of uh, goes way back to the beginnings of my adulthood when I was graduating from divinity school and really passionately involved in the human spirit. And though I didn't have any uh, calling to any formal ministry, um, I really did feel like my life work was going to be how to sort of imbue, for lack of a better verb, imbue the human spirit in practically any endeavor that I that I set out to um, to be a part of. Mm -hmm. And so, um, uh, and the human spirit can be a very impractical thing. So, uh, when I graduated from Yale Divinity School, I um, got a master's degree in special education. Um, working with emotionally disturbed adolescents. And somehow the practical raw needs of kids who were really in crisis, really suffering, I mean, yeah. suicidal, homicidal kind of kids, butted up against this notion of imbuing life with the human spirit. And those two um, um, endeavors um, intersected in the imagination. Imagination mm -hmm. is both really uh, wild and, and crazy and focused on possibility, but it can be extremely practical. We need imagination at certain times in our lives um, and nothing else will do, frankly. So I found that that's, that's where the midway is for me. The Midway right. Center for Creative Imagination is all about finding the place where the possibilities of the imagination meet the, the practicalities of living in a, in a, in a changing world. No, I'm really excited to talk about that because, I mean, <laughs> in our current state with how fast technology is developing and the way culture is, um, you know, just evolving so quickly over a short period of time, uh, imagination is, is so central to that. Um, before we go too, many too, too much further into that, because I'm really excited to talk about it, why don't we have you pick a number uh, 1 through 25, and we'll ask a fun personal question just to, to, I think you're already warmed up, but to get you maybe a little bit more warmed up. <laughs> So, so this is the personal question. Yes. This okay. is, it's more of like a moral, ethical, or just kind of fun question. Okay. Um, 22. 22. Do you have a technique for keeping calm? Oh, wow. What a great one. Um, well, first of all, I I'm not sure that calm is um, a virtue that I 
you know, uh, I, um, that I aspire to in, you know, in, in great amounts, I guess. Yeah. I am more on the passionate um, side of the spectrum where, uh, and it's not to say that I don't get calm and maybe calmness is, um, for me, it's a little bit more of a, of a virtue as you get older right. to be serene and <laughs> wise um, and, uh, <laughs> might make more sense then, but I never aspired to it. <laughs> I actually have all sorts of techniques for how to not be calm, you know, how to no. sort of like stay in touch with one's passion and stay focused on the things that, um, that lead, lead to the full expression of my, of my humanity. I guess that's, that's. Would, would you of, be willing to share one of those exercises that you do to kind of maintain that? Well, I, my, my sense is that the doorway to all of that is curiosity and to sort of yeah. keep one's curiosity um, it, 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 as much 360 degrees um, around the spectrum as you possibly can make it. So I read widely and, and pretty voraciously. And um, I, you know, the world always opens itself to your imagination if you slow down enough to be really paying attention. So this is a little bit of an, uh, an irony, I think, or a paradox is that I, I think sometimes things like passion get um, confused with like busyness and that you're constantly sort of like yeah. active and stuff like that. No. Where I find that the slowing down um, process that allows you to really notice and pay attention to things, you can fall in love with the world practically minute by minute by just really noticing what's right in front of your face. I, I at this stage in my life, I tend to walk for an hour every morning. Right. And um, and there's just there's always something on every single walk yeah. that just brings you to life. And um, but you have to slow down enough to be paying attention. And I spent 40 years of my life, Augustine, mostly on airplanes, um, mostly at 40,000 feet, sort of between one place or another, not noticing very much. All right. Um, so this has been a really delightful sort of rediscovery for me um, to slow down and pay attention. There's this there's this wonderful um, Italian phrase that um, hangs above my desk here, uh, festina lente, which means hasten slowly, hasten yeah. slowly in your life. And I think what they are trying to get at is um, move quickly. There's an urgency. Um, there's stuff to be doing every single day, but, but be really patient um, and pay attention to everything as you're going. And I think that that's where this really rare um, part of human experience, which I would call fulfillment. That's where you find fulfillment, I think, is when you're moving slowly enough to really be paying attention to what's going on right here and right now. You know, it's so funny you bring that up because literally it must have been last week I was listening to a podcast where they had on, I believe he was Norwegian and he was an ultra marathon runner and he was the person who walked by himself to the North Pole. And it, I, I believe it took him somewhere between two and three months of complete isolation, just walking close to eight hours every single day. And that was a huge part of his takeaway as well was, yeah. you know, life moves fast and sometimes yeah. you just need to slow down, go for a walk and really pay attention yeah. to everything that's going past. I mean, you notice that a lot with the resurgent in uh, uh, interest in pilgrimages. I mean, yeah. pilgrimages as, as sort of like a spiritual discipline, that's precisely what they're all about. So like the um, you know, the Camino that people walk through uh, Spain and stuff like that. Right. Everybody slows down enough. And I think you, you sort of, you, you fight it, you fight it for a while. You know, you, it seems too slow, but gradually your mind starts aligning 
to this different rhythm and you start seeing what's always been around you. And I, I, I don't mean outside myself um, exclusively either. And my guess is that the Norwegian on this way to the North Pole, <laughs> there's not a lot of no, changing things to be seen. Much. So of course it's a projection of everything that's going on inside him. And it's a lovely, it's a lovely um, rhythm to life when you do that. You know, it, it's interesting because it's easy to isolate that to a single moment um, when you're going on a walk or something like that for an hour to just be present in the moment. But how would you advise someone to apply that same principle in a yeah. job or maybe yeah. like when they're doing work? What would yeah. your advice be to? Yeah, absolutely. That's where it is. It's like not, not everybody has a luxury of hour long walks in the morning and so forth. Interestingly enough, um, Augustine, my one of my sons is a physician. And I remember in his residency in hospitals where um, you, you, you probably can't get a more frenetic um, life and death environment than being in a hospital where no. you enter a space that's probably the worst day in a person's life and maybe the life of the family that's in the room too. Yeah. And you deal with it. And then with all the economics and um, of um, healthcare these days, you've got to quickly move to the next room. You've got seconds um, mm -hmm. to move from this one really intense place that requires your absolute and total presence to another place that also um, um, involves that. Meanwhile, yeah. you have to let go of the old place that you've just been yeah. in. You can't carry that into the next room. And you've got 10, literally 10 seconds, 15 seconds to sort of do that. So what we've been working on, um, it, it, you know, it sort of goes under the general heading of resilience, because this is what burns people out, is that it's just humanly sort of impossible to not numb yourself in yeah. an environment that requires that kind of concentration. And I don't mean just mental, I mean heartfelt concentration, no. compassion, so you can literally sort of be in the emotional and spiritual space of people whose loved ones might be dying and stuff like that. What do you do in the 10 seconds? Can you breathe? How do you, uh, you know, one of the techniques that we um, oftentimes talk about in sort of meditative sessions um, is how do you, you, you have to breathe. You have to focus on fundamentals like your breathing. And, and one of the meditations is about imagining yourself as a lightning rod where you know, you've just taken in all of this emotional, mental, spiritual, physical energy from one space and that you have to ground it. You, you can't let it get stuck in you. You have to imagine yourself as the, um, the element that this is all passing through and give it back to the earth. I think, because you can't contain it for very long. That's what leads to burnout. So, um, yeah, and this happens in every or any every corporation that I've worked in. Um, busyness seems to be a plague right now. I, yeah. Busyness being somehow equated with being productive and busyness right. has nothing to do with being productive. But people get so busy, they're sort of like... Um, uh, plate spinners in a in a circus. I don't know if you remember those. Old yeah, no, yeah, the sort of all on the different a, fingers. You know, yeah, plate on top of a dowel, and then go and do another one, and then this one starts wobbling. So you go back and do that, and people go through days and weeks, you know, feeling exhausted coming home from work, but not sure that they actually accomplished very much because it was all about keeping all of those plates spinning and not necessarily moving any anything beyond that. 
So there is a kind of um, emotional and I think um, spiritual depression that, that sets in when you don't feel like your day has been purposeful, for instance. Yeah. You just feel like you've done a lot and you're physically and mentally tired, but what did I actually do? What did I, what did I move? What did I grow today? What did I weed out, out today? And I think when you get um, too much into those kind of busyness rhythms, um, you're in real trouble. Busyness, um, I think it's the, it, it, in, you'll, you'll know better than me, um, Augustus, <laughs> about this, but in one of the Chinese dialects, I think that the translation of the character for busyness is heart and killing. Heart oh, and killing. You know, you're right. I think I, this was... This, you're, you're really stressing my <laughs> Chinese knowledge, but I do think I know what you're talking about. Was that in, it was either like the Confucian or, or that th tradition. I think it's Confucian. Text. Yeah. You know, I, 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 I'm, I, I'm, uh, um, I'm naive about a lot of this stuff. I heard it in divinity school from a professor that I really <laughs> trusted and I like it. I like the, the spirit of what's being said there. Um, and so I've just sort of held on to it. You know, that that, that that kind of raises an interesting point for me. And I think we might have discussed this actually in some of the pre-work that we did for this interview. But I, I've interviewed a few people at this point on the topic of leadership and specifically on the topic of ethical leadership. And one thing that seems to kind of be continuously re-emerging is kind of this theme of like meditation yeah. um, and self-reflection. And I think that's especially important in what in what you're saying when it comes down to that how do you see meditation and um you know productivity kind of going hand in hand what's your take on how to integrate those two things yeah um it, it's a great question because I, once again it might be counterintuitive they are, you know i think that we've been plagued with this notion that um to be slightly out of control because you're so damn busy yeah. Um, it has some link to productivity and it just, it just hasn't been, been proven to be so. So, um, you know, meditate, the word meditation used to scare people more than it does now. I think a more sort of refined notion of it that seems to work in the corporate world that I spent a lot of time in is mindfulness. Yeah. And can we be more mindful and present to the moment that we're in every moment of that day? And um, in, in some ways, I think, corporations, again, this is just one man's experience. So don't quote me beyond. <laughs> I, I speak from no authority except my own from my own travels and stuff. There's just so many sort of like outmoded industrial age models of co what corporations are set yeah. out to do. Like, you know, work should really not be fulfilling it, you know, just come in and do your damn job. Yeah and submit yourself to, you know, these corporate um, efforts and goals and stuff like that, which you won't necessarily be rewarded with yourself. Right. Um, and, and, you know, that way of thinking really kind of rigid hierarchies and stuff like that, all of which is disintegrating in our time. So I'm really speaking historically now. But I think that this notion of productivity for its own sake is kind of on its way out. And that um, to, to the, the extent that machines, and I think mm -hmm. machines really are taking over a great deal of the think, even the thinking jobs of what's, right. um, what's happening in organizations right now, it does invite us to sort of reimagine what are we doing there? What's the human, what is the human contribution right, to right. this whole notion? And, and um, to the degree that we, that serving is really what we're all here to do. And I think 
that's probably where productivity and performance really comes from. It's like, how well are you serving whatever the the goals of the organization or the service the organization is providing? How well are you serving that end? Um, you know, you're you're going to sort of stay in business longer. The right. problem, I think, with this old industrial model is um, that it really taught us to stop thinking about the bigger questions. What yeah. are we doing here? Why are we doing it? And as a consequence, I think we um, organizations get quickly out of sync with the original purpose that they were formed to, yeah. uh, to uh, accomplish. There's a, there's a great Latin word. I, again, I learned, I forget when I learned it. <laughs> the, word, the word is um, enantiodromia. And enantiodromia refers to the way that all systems end up subverting the very thing the system was set up to accomplish. Hmm. All systems, no matter what the system, no matter what the area of life that you're talking about, the system itself ends up subverting the thing um, it was set out to accomplish. So if you look at the spirit of education, for instance. Um, yeah, <laughs> that was the first thing that came yeah. to my mind. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, you know, the, 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 the Latin um, for the word education ex comes from ex ducar, which means to lead out. That yeah. the original spirit of education is it's already in you. Um, people used to call it your genius. Yeah. And the, the spirit of education was contact that individual's genius and lead it out so it can be made a gift to the world, you know? Right. Um, and we've sort of reversed that, you know? Um, education is a lot about cramming in now. Yeah. Sort of like, what more da data can we put in um, to this person? And how can they sort of spew that, what we've taught them? How can they give that back to us so we can say, very well, you've learned your lessons you know, congratulations and stuff like that. Once again, I know I'm talking historically a little bit that we're, no. we're on the move in this. No, I, I wanted to actually push back a little bit on your point because I feel like in, in some ways we haven't progressed on, on those points, you know? Um, and this comes again from my limited experience as a young, you know, still undergraduate student, but it's definitely something I've noticed as an undergraduate student in my university is that and part of it, I think, stems from this current desire that we have for meritocracy and like, you know, these elite institutions, whether it be, you know, school or, you know, in the workplace, there's this idea that in order to be the best, your students have to be miserable and they just have to be <laughs> yeah. like working all the time and just have constant yeah. homework and assignments. And I've really felt that, especially, you know, as I become more disillusioned towards the end of my time um, yeah. in university, literally the last few weeks, is that, you know, a lot of what I do in my daily schedule, a lot of the homework that I'm assigned, a lot of the prep work that I have for exams is, at the end of the day, largely irrelevant. It's yeah. kind of almost feels like filler yeah. that they need to hit some you know, quota on, you know, you need to have this amount of exams, yeah. students should have or in this range of grades, and then it reflects badly on the professor if they're not achieving those grades. And it kind of feels like the original desire, like you said, you know, leading out of yeah. leading out that genius is kind of being lost. And this, um, you know, desire to understand a material is being yeah. 
replaced with cramming knowledge in, yeah. in a very temporary exam focused yeah. style. And I don't think that's necessarily anything new, no. um, but it's definitely, you know, not a problem that's gone away yet. I don't know if you saw it. There was a recent event, I think it happened in the past few months where Dartmouth was doing all this online testing and they started to integrate all of these advanced systems for monitoring students' performance and like whether or not they were cheating or not. Yeah. And then they came down super hard on the students yeah. who, without any real data to support it, they said had cheated. And I feel like that kind of like embodies that spirit of like, oh, you gotta you gotta be perfect in every possible way. Like you can't, we're not gonna let you slip up. We have no trust in your ability to yeah. to be passionate about the subject that you're learning. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, first of all, congratulations on, on your cynicism. At this time. <laughs> I, I, I sometimes wonder, I sometimes wonder if this is what the institutions secretly want is they want us to become disillusioned. So, so we will end up sort of changing them going forward. But um, you're right. I was painting too rosy a picture. I think, I think education is woefully be, behind the times, you know, the paradigm of education is really disintegrating um, in our lifetimes. And it's really, it's really hard. And I think people are starting to look around. I mean, the idea of paying exorbitant amounts of money for the privilege of listening to lectures and stuff like that is a, is a, is a, um, some, uh, you know, an idea whose time has come and gone, I think, yeah. but we haven't, we haven't um, come to the other side of that paradigm yet, although we're coming. And yeah. interestingly enough for me, since we're just on the subject of, of, of learning and how does real learning what do we mean by an educated person? Right. Um, you know, a, a lot of good work has been done by looking back and like, you know, what was education like before all of this? And um, some of the models, especially from indigenous people that I've um, come across are really, really interesting. And they're not that different by uh, than what we do. But just as an example, there's a four part model for how education, I mean, learning happens through the course of a whole lifetime right. that I think is really useful for us, for us to consider. Um, it starts with belonging, that before uh, <clears throat> anything else is possible, you need to feel like you belong to something that is worthy of your time and energy that yeah. you want to sort of like give yourself to and focus on. So, yeah. you know, in that way, schools and universities with mascots and athletic teams and and wonderful, that, they do that really, really well. No, yeah. The next phase is mastery. And, you know, I don't want to, you know, come across as some pie in the sky kind of a person. <laughs> there are basic skills that you have to master. Yeah. And that's really wonderful. But I actually think that at least in undergraduate education, that's sort of where we stop. Yeah. The third um, uh, uh, movement um, in a learned individual is independence, which is you've got enough mastery. Now everything yeah. is all about how you, as a, a particular genius, um, how you independently apply all of that. So I have a, a wonderful daughter-in-law who's a soil scientist, and she just got her PhD in soil science, and carbon, um, uh, whatever it is, um, you know. <laughs> don't don't look at me. I'm okay, a soil okay, good. science expert. Good uh, sequestration, <laughs> I think it's called sequestration. Um, okay, but there was she just really applied, um, you know, her learning in an independent thing that is going to be part of her gift to the world. I think. And then yeah. the final stage of this, Augustine, is generosity. 
that there it's sort of, and this is the ancient role of the elder, which is that there comes a time when the only thing that you're concerned with is giving onward and giving backward, whatever it is that you've learned, not as though somebody else has to walk your path or do what you did, but as a starting point to sort of like keep this rhythm of people, you know, um, helping each other out, just keeping that rhythm going. Right. So I, I think that the second half of that model, this is an ancient indigenous model of learning, yeah. the independence and the generosity side of it is almost totally missing. I, I think that we're way too competitive, for instance, um, as individuals in um, educational institutions right now, and right. frankly, in corporations. Um, I do a lot of work in corporations right now under the heading of mutual mentoring. Like how, yeah. do, how do people mutually help each other become better at their jobs and stuff like that. That's where I think we're going to get the real um, benefits in productivity and in keeping up with the changing world. No, well, that makes me feel good because that was a big one of the big purposes of this podcast was to kind of have like flip the script a little bit with the mentor mentee relationship yeah. and have a younger individual interviewing the experts and kind of learning from it mutually. So I'm happy to hear that that's a big part of it. There was one thing that I wanted to touch on though, um, because you mentioned that independence stage. And I think that's something that's become incredibly apparent to me in my time at university is there is and I think <laughs> I don't want to get too much into like economics and capitalism and everything like that. But I do feel like there is a certain love lost with the capitalist model, um, yeah. especially in higher education, because it feels like I know a lot of really brilliant young people um, who are just pursuing a business degree because it's what will make them the most money. Yeah. Um, and it's hard to flip that script when, you know, I felt it very intensely as I was coming towards the time of my time in university. I'm a Chinese major. I do have a business econ minor. Um, but, you know, going down those career paths, trying to find graduate schools, trying to find undergrad uh, or, you know, career opportunities when you don't have one of those stock and standard degrees. Yeah. Um, it's hard and, and it feels like a much more uphill struggle yeah. um, than I feel like it should be, despite the fact that, you know, my interests and, and and i'm not saying like all business majors you know they're just you know sellouts or whatever um but there it's it feels unrewarding when your passion for a specific subject goes underappreciated especially in like a career yeah. um field and i got really fortunate that i was accepted to a graduate program that did like what i was putting out and and accepted me um, but how do you think, you know, as someone who's interacted with a lot of companies with a lot of stuff, how do you think those companies can better get in touch with that kind of passion that people have for a subject? How do you how do you recognize that and, and, and try and make that a more like a hiring goal? Yeah, you know, um, it starts with just paying attention to their experience, Augustine. Because, yeah. again, in my experience with corporations, the person that you just described is precisely what people want. Yeah. They want independent thinkers. They want people who have, have learned to stand on their own two feet and who show up with their own individual point of view. Um, that's definitely what leaders 
are looking for. And what's required of leadership is that we don't need you if you don't have your own point of view. And you don't get your own point of view if you've just been getting your degrees in order to satisfy some requirement that you think somebody else has, right. um, you know, for you. I just remember, you know, I, I, I worked um, uh, years ago for um, a, a, a credit card company. And um, they were, I was doing a lot of work with their human resource uh, department, right. but uh, there was a story told about their C CEO who's quite famous, who um, they, they were talking about a strategy for how they were going to attract the best and the brightest to come and work for their company. Right. And, and they set out, they, their, their strategy was to sort of go to all the Ivy League schools and sort of like, you know, <laughs> how, how they were going to pitch them. And, and the CEO stopped that and he said, stop, where did you go to school? Where did you go to school? And, he went, and none of them went to an Ivy League school, none of them. And he said, what are you talking about? You, you know, it's, it's, it's an enchantment. Um, it's this, it's almost like we're under this spell that somehow pres the prestige of this place yeah. actually um, translates to higher performance. And there's nothing to indicate that that actually happens. So, right. you know, I think you start with your own experience and, but then, you need courage in leadership, courage in leadership to, to because frankly, people like you are gonna be harder to manage. <laughs> um, you're gonna, leaders love you, managers hate you. You know what yeah. I mean? Managers, no, hold it, you're thinking outside the box here. I really need you to yeah. focus on this. But a leader will say, I need that guy on my team. So if you can stand one more model, um, Augustine, you know, from the old days. Please. <laughs> uh, I think it's, I think it's the Navajo um, who think who say that there's basically two paths in life. Mm -hmm. um, one is called the path of convention, and one is called the path of the individual quest. And they both start at the same place, birth, and they both end at the same place, death. But they always draw them as going around the opposite sides of a healing painting, you know, a sand painting. Yeah. And they're basically saying there's no advantage to being in one or the other. You start at birth and you end at death. So, you know, don't think that there's any advantage to right. one. But but they say everything depends on you knowing your nature. That yeah. are you a conventional person? And if you're a conventional person, you might put up with an MBA degree that it depersonalizes you <laughs> and say, yeah, but I want the conventional rewards of being an MBA. So, yeah. and that's fine if you want it. But there's other people, and frankly, I suspect you're one of them. <laughs> who, you, you, you're, you feel something withering in you um, yeah. when you take that. And you've got to go on your own path. And the individual quest, it's no joke, meaning you're going to be alone a lot. You're going to yeah. have to stand by yourself a lot. And, um, and the rewards are magnificent. And you sleep tend to sleep well at night because you don't betray yourself very often. Right. Um, so, you know, I, but, but it's lonely. And the, the thing about people on the individual quest is that they find each other, you know? Yeah. And, and so, so that's the good news for the path that I think <laughs> you're on is that there's all sorts of really wonderful, interesting people who have kind of said no to the conventional trappings of, of, a, of a career path and stuff right. like that and have said yes to their own sense of what grounds them and moves them and what they what they feel like their purpose on this planet is. Yeah. Then maybe I can turn that back on you. Um, wh what do you find your 
passion or your purpose in your career is? How have you, um, you know, yeah. grown that over your time? Or how did you discover it uh, yeah. early on might be useful for someone like me, yeah. who's still kind of piecemealing it together and, 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 and grasping yeah. at straws to try and figure out what what their passion is? Sure, sure. So, you know, under, understand, of course, that I am on an individual quest. I've always been on it. And it was good for me to know that early on, because I didn't waste a lot of time looking for support or ratification or any right. of that sort of stuff, except in my own inner inner um, spiritual life and stuff like that. Right. I can, you could you can feel it. I again, I suspect you already know this, but we all have an in, internal compass that's pretty accurate. And if you're yeah. paying attention, even you know um, uh, uh, straying away from the kind of the path that um, that you're on. By 10 degrees and you feel it ah, i just don't feel like it. this is exactly right right so as i said earlier augustine the only thing that i knew um, as a younger man was that my life had something to do with um bringing spirit into a world that i felt was impoverished spiritually but in unorthodox settings and in unorthodox ways at yale divinity school which was a very formative time in my life um i i, I uh, was fortunate enough to be there uh, and study under a man who's just been really influential for me, a Catholic priest named Henry Nowen, who's just mm -hmm. was an incredible, very charismatic guy. Yeah. And the course that I, um, that sort of changed my life is uh, one that was called Ministry in Non-Religious Institutions. And it was about, you know, okay, so you don't feel called to an orthodoxy, right? You don't have a creed. You don't have, a, a, you know, beliefs that you can stand up with uh, you know 200 other people in a space and all say the same words none of that stuff made any sense to me but the notion of the invisible underpinnings the spiritual and soulful underpinnings to everything else that we do yeah. that moved me like um like lightning and i could not live a life where i wasn't serving that somehow yeah. so i just started looking around at those early days and saying where is spirit missing that it might be really, really useful. And I felt like I took on one of the biggest wastelands, which was in corporations. I just think yeah. corporations, <laughs> um, and, and it's not, it's not, there's nothing the matter with corporations. I just think that they never saw the reason for it. But, yeah. you know, if you really want to get practical about pro productivity and stuff like that, um, people's discretionary energy um, um, is where uh, greatness comes from, you know, uh, yeah. great performance in an individual or a team. They have to choose to do that. And they choose to do that when some deep, more, more often than any other, for any other reason, than when something deep and purposeful is stirring in them and saying, I really want to give more of myself to this thing. I was reading... Um, the other day, an interview um, with a, uh, an ex-CEO of one of my favorite um, American companies, Patagonia, just uh, yeah. how they, what they stand for and how they, you know, how they think about their place on the planet. And she was just noticing, it was almost like an offhanded comment, and she was just noticing, she said, people here do their best work when they are joyful. Yeah. And it's like, holy cow, I mean, it's, it's so seems so obvious to me that that's when I do my best work is when no. I am full of, I mean, enthusiasm. Um, when I'm enthusiastic, I do my very best work. And enthusiasm, the word comes from entheos, which is 
to be filled with spirit, to be filled yeah. with God. <laughs> and you, you know, when you're overflowing with that, you've just got more to give, right? And you no. want to do it. So I just sort of thought, you know, I think I can help these corporations out by freeing up more of the latent, I call it spiritual energy. If that's awkward, you know, we can call it something else, but it's more than emotional. It's, it's grounded in purpose and a sense of aligning your personal purpose with a great need of the world and finding where those things intersect. That seems to be where people do their best work. You know, that, that brings up something I was thinking about too, was that a difficult thing that I find right now as a young individual trying to find a career is that a lot of the mission statements that are put out by organizations are very misleading. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and it makes it very difficult to identify the culture in an organization and to find that spiritual meaning yeah. when there's these very carefully crafted facades of, of mission statements, of purpose, of, you know, ethical endeavors. Yeah. Um, and how would you recommend, you know, cutting through that message? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm not very savvy about stuff like that, Augustine. So yeah. for me, um, you know, it's trial and error. It's like yeah. I, I do I do as much due diligence beforehand as I can. Um, and then I commit to something and give it everything I, I can. But you're you're right about that. And sometimes the most purpose filled, focused um, organizations that you heard about 10 years ago are the worst. Yeah. <laughs> they sort of surfed that wave for a long time, but they haven't put much energy into renewal of it. How do you keep renewing? Um, as a consequence, or um, in distinction to that, sometimes the people who have really been hard up against really tough times and come through have relearned, you know, to be purposeful and the importance of, of meaningful sacrifice and not pursuing the easy path or the, the, you know, the cheap words and stuff like that. Insight without action breeds cynicism. That's what yeah. I, that's a motto that I really look at. So I have become sort of almost um, <laughs> to people's business, um, you know, purpose statements. I don't read their words. Yeah. I just pay attention to their actions. I, I do think word of mouth and it's one, one of the things that social media tends to do pretty well is that word spreads very, very quickly. Yeah. I, I have a, you know, a long-standing relationship with a, with a very, it used to be a very purpose-driven automobile uh, company that, that has sort of like lost its way on a few t occasions and stuff like that. And I just remember the sadness and the disillusionment on young people's face when they said, I came to work here precisely because of, of what you guys purport to be and how purpose-driven right. you guys actually are. And I don't see any of it going on. And so, but I don't know how you get to that place um, without going through it and getting wounded a few times and picking yeah. up your stakes and moving to another place. Um, no, I, I think you're totally right. I, some of the most inspirational individuals that I've met over the course of my life have been people who come from organizations with deep flaws and yeah. recognize those. And then, like you said, take action. They want to get out. They want to start their own organization. They want to start their own company, their own, you yeah. know, non-for-profit yeah. to fight against that 
you know, lack of spirituality or however you want to call it in organizations. Yeah. Um, and if that's something that you're passionate about, I think it's really important that you find those organizations that are going to channel your energy. Yeah. Um, yeah. Correctly. You know, it, it's, it, it is interesting. I oftentimes just because you can probably, you can probably tell in this conversation that I have a, a point of view and yeah. <laughs> I, I, I almost never work with organizations that share my point of view. Yeah. And that was just a that was just a, um, a vocational decision. And by the way, um, just to go back to something you said earlier, when you were talking about career choices, the word career comes from sort of like an, an old English root that refers to the path uh, or the rut that a cart makes when it goes over <laughs> the same ground over and over again. Yeah. So um, I don't think you want a career. I think you want a vocation. Yeah. And a vocation is a higher sense where your whole kind of um, you know, physical, mental, emotional, spiritual self feels like deeply engaged in whatever the work is. That's that's a, that's a divinity school word that I like a lot. Is <laughs> where does your great gift meet the world's great need? That's a vocation, and I yeah. I can tell that that's what you want about all of that. So, yeah. and now I've totally forgotten the question that you asked. But. No, no worries. Well, I think that actually comes to kind of the close of our time, unfortunately. Um, but I wanted to thank you so much for coming on, David. It's always wonderful to talk to you. And I'm so glad that we, despite all scheduling errors and everything that went on, we were finally able to find a time. Um, right before we leave, I do want to do one final personal question because it's always fun. And I kind of like doing one at the end because they're just fun. So pick a, pick a number between 1 and 25, and um, I'll, I'll give you the question. Uh, 11. 11. Okay, let's see. Do you feel happier spending or saving? And how does that reflect on your approach to life? Oh my gosh. Um, spending. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, no. Me and too. It, <laughs> Me I, too. I mean, without question, no. I, 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 my sense is that anybody who um, deals primarily with creative energy will tell you something similar is that you've got to keep making new space, you've got to keep giving stuff out to create new space for stuff to come in. The world is a really abundant place, but if you're if you're saving all the time, there's no there's no space inside you for new stuff to sort of enter. So I'm a big spender. There's nothing better than being empty because the next morning you're going to be I, I I can't deny that I've gone down a very um, deep rut of getting into music and music related equipment, um, particularly <laughs> headphones, as you might be able to tell. And there's few things that bring you as much joy as just getting something, yeah. uh, spending something that you feel is meaningful and that that enriches your life. Um, so I'm completely on board with the spending mentality. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining me today, David. Have a wonderful day. Before Last thing before we get off, do you have anything that you'd like to plug? Any projects that you're working on? Any books that you're writing? Maybe just something that you really enjoyed engaging with and you would like other people to hear about? Yeah, yeah. I, just real quickly, um, one of the, the, the my interests, and in, frankly, the, the way I found you or you found me, Augustine, yeah. is through... Um, your father, um, who is more of an age peer um, than, uh, to me than you are. And um, he and I are involved in a project that I like quite a lot for people at the other end of the time that we're talking about. You're, you're beginning a vocation, your work life. We're ending. And what's that next phase of life right. all about? Because I, it's, it's hope, hopelessly ill-formed. You know, we don't talk about being old and stuff like that. And it's only seen in sort of negative terms and stuff like that. Well, we're doing something about it. 
And so I, anybody at that end of the age spectrum that might be listening to you today, <laughs> I would encourage them to check out our website. It's called Farther On, just one word, fartheron.org. And this is just all about creating a rite of passage to usher us out of the world of work, where your life is really defined for you from out, outside, to a meaningful and fulfilling time in the next phase of your life. So fartheron.org is what I want to plug. Yeah, and we can also plug my father, who will be on a future episode very soon. <laughs> so I'm looking forward to interviewing him, and um, I'm sure he'll have <laughs> he'll probably listen plug to the that same man. Thing. Listen to that man; he's got a lot to say. Uh, he does. He he's got a lot to say. I can I I know that from personal experience. <laughs> well, have a wonderful day, David. Um, I enjoyed talking with you so much. You've been listening to the Inspiring Brave Leaders podcast by Magnolia Tree. This is Daliana Eliesch, the editor of the podcast. Feel free to reach us or visit our website for more bursts of inspiration around leadership. You can find a link for our website and our social media platforms in our bio. Thank you for tuning in.